Isle of Faces. We, today we are talking Scraps and Scrolls, Valoridas, Clash of Kings, Part 7. We're into the second half. Like I say, I am Sir Berkeley. I am speaking to you from surprisingly sunny, absolutely bloody freezing England. So much so that I have a towel wrapped around my shoulders currently because my beloved Chewy onesie is in the wash. Yes, pray for me, we will get through it together. Yes, welcome. Part number seven, another six chapters for you today. We are on our way, events are building, and well, we know what's coming, but it's fun to get there too. So before we start, let me tell you what chapters we are looking at today. We have John 4, the one with the fist of the first men. We have Brand 5, the one where Sir Roderick returns with Greek slash someone else. Tyrion 8, the one with uh, the discussion of Renly's death and the discussion of weddings to come. Theon 3, the one where Theon begins his personal invasion of the North. Aya 8, the one with Shakanagar Part 2. And finally, Catelyn 5. Yes, another Catelyn chapter. Catelyn 5, Catelyn returns to River Run and Edmure gets Billy Big Balls. So, yes, hello, welcome. Probably a short episode today because, uh, to be honest with you, most of my notes got used up by Aziz on Sunday, so... I must be doing something right, I suppose. So thank you, Aziz, for that. And thank you all for tuning in and listening and, of course, doing that repeatedly and on the kind comments. As always, we'd love to hear from you. You can find me, I'm sure you know by now, at Sir Berkeley on Twitter. The website is thegrindstoneock.co.uk. And we have an email as well, islandfacespodcast at gmail.com. So if you'd like to say hello, if you have any questions, if you want to throw any kind of insult at me, you're welcome to do so but I'll throw one right back. That's how I do it on the Isle of Faces. always like to hear from the fans, and again, thank you for yet more support for the Castles book. It's still pouring in somehow. That'll be on its way shortly, but that's why we got a quick episode today. i got to get back to work. So let's start off, shall we, with John Thor, The Fist of the First Men. And I like this chapter because uh, I relate easily to The Fist of the First Men in real life. Me and my wife, the lovely Lady Buckley, who I'm sure you remember, we have hills near us that we refer to as the Fist of the First Men because we, even before we got a dog, we went walking in the hills. Now we definitely do with the dog. Let me say, should we walk on the Fist of the First Men? That's the Fist of the First Men over there because uh, we live in a place with a lot of hills. Really, southwest of England, Wiltshire, look it up. I have a big, big hill I can see out my window right now. It's too flat to look at the Fist of the First Men, but I know if I walk a little bit further, we can see great big mounds punching out of the air just like the fist is described and i quite i live quite near uh, silbury hill if you don't know what that is look it up because that's a big old hill and it's quite northern because it's basically a uh, a burial ground fun side story when i was a child i used to be able to walk on silbury hill until someone fell through it into the like chambers beneath with all the dead people no they don't let you walk on it weirdly anyway so the fist of the first man geo mormont you know how I feel about Dior Mormont. He's setting up camp, basically. And Foreign Smallwood, he says, well, this is good. The, the fish should be easy to defend. It's really high. It's already got like, the remnants of the ring fort. This is good. High ground is good. That is true. Um, if you were fighting living men, that is. Now, to be fair to Darwin, he doesn't know an army of the dead's about to attack them. But as they will find, they're not so bothered about the heights and stuff. So that's uh, unlucky for them. It still isn't a great place to be anyway. There's no water. It's an annoying place to rest. You've got to go up and down for water, as John notes. So John's on the level here. Now, I'm going to get to the Geor talk early. I know that's what you're all here for, really. We talk about Bran, Joe. No, don't talk about Catelyn. Get to your Geor talk. And I hear you, people, so I shall. 
Now, I've already argued, they shouldn't be there at all. They should be back at the wall. But at least Dior makes the right call about standing at the fist because some of them, they want him to go to abandon the fist and go straight on attack Mance. That would be an even worse idea. So if you're going to pick one or the other, at least he makes the right choice here. And uh, Aziz got to my notes about, you know, you could just use that bloody big wall behind you. So I, I won't repeat that. Now, time and again, we've said, or I've said, that Dior has, by now, abandoned the mission for Benjamin Stark in favour of this big event of his career, the big something that Dior needs before he goes out. So he, he kind of fobs John off with, it's an acceptable excuse that uh, it's easier for Benjamin to find us than it is for us to find Benjamin. That's true. Can't knock him there. Good logic. But I get the feeling right now, if there was a signpost that said Benjamin 20 miles that way, but they'd have to leave the fist, I'm not sure if they would. I, even if John knew, I'm really not sure. If he had to abandon Mance or, or his little mission here, I think Dior is just too attached to this to this little mission. And let's not forget, is okay, yes, it is the better option to not march against Mance. But again, it is so easy for Mance to just cut them off. They just surround them move past them, then they're in trouble. You know, there's a reason that the fist has been abandoned, and it's that the wall beats it out in every category, as as he's got to. Another note about Dior Mormont here, he's, talk, he's telling John exactly how, how he likes his beer. He's very fussy, Dior Mormont. He, he doesn't like lemon, because apparently the lemon is the rankest southern heresy. And I just thought, okay, lemon equals south. Sansa likes lemons. Sansa once liked the south. Little connection there for you. So John, he thinks a lot about Dior's age in this chapter, but again, I have to be fair to the old bear. He actually handles this part pretty well. He handles the march back pretty well. Of all his faults, which I have listed again and again, his age doesn't seem to be one of them. So I, I can't hold that against him. He is doing as well as men, I don't know, what, 50, 40 years younger than him. So respect him for that. It's just all the you know decisions and that that I have an issue with. So Dywin again, he says he's got the smell of cold and... I think that's kind of important, given what Renly just said in... Was that our last chapter last week? I think it was, wasn't it, when Renly died? So, considering that Renly said, oh, cold, when he got killed by that shadow assassin, now Dywin is saying he smells the cold, it's just a link between the, the creepiness. And this is already a pretty creepy chapter, just for John, just in a vacuum. So when we start linking it to the shadow assassins thousands of miles away, it gets a little bit creepier. Uh, at one point, there's the quote... There's a thousand shades of green, and then later, a thousand leaves fluttered. That, just, that puts me in the mind of a thousand dies in one. I think it, we can easily connect this chapter to uh, Blood Raven and everything that John finds. So if there's more clues in the text, I think that could be one, or that could be two, rather. And again, like I said, this is a superbly suspense chapter. It's there for suspense, much like uh, Aya's earlier one, where we knew uh, they were being chased by Amory Lorch. Much like John's first chapter in, in The Haunted Forest, it's all set up and it's all made to feel very creepy, which is kind of easy when you've just seen someone be murdered by a, a shadow assassin. But like I said, that's miles, miles, miles away. So George is moving all that suspense right up here, right to the north. And we get that real sense of history, but of danger and, of course, magic. So finally for this chapter, I wonder, I can't remember really, does John ever reflect on finding this horn? Some of you might have to message in and remind me, because I don't recall. If he does, it doesn't feel like it's in a significant way, I, I obviously can't remember, even after finding out that Mance's was a fake. I know he he does think of it later because he says, that, like, it doesn't work, it's cracked or whatever, but I don't know, it just seems to fade into obscurity, but one of you might have to help me out with that. So that is John 4. Goodbye to John for today. 
That's our only John. We're moving slightly back down south to Bran 5, which is the one with Jojen having another dream, an even more gloomy one, if possible. And also we get some news from Rob's War, and we also get the return of Sir Roderick. So I only have three notes for this, because again, Aziz, he beat me to the punch. He's got a lot of my notes down. So firstly, it's not like we didn't know this before, but the letter from the South about Sir Stevan Frey and his death really points out the contrast between Starks and Freys and what they value. Starks, we, we know, I don't need to tell you, they value family and the bigger picture and each other, their links to each other. The Freys, not so much. They are, the, the two Freys, especially Big Walder, who, if you remember, is actually the smaller one, they are just concerned about the line of succession, what this means for them, how can they climb the ladder. And let's remember, they're like, they're children, they're like nine years old, these two. Nine-year-olds really aren't supposed to be ambitious yet, and even if you want to count uh, family progression and the killing of relatives as ambitious. They, they just care about their line of inheritance, so really we get to see very clearly why the Starks are different to the rest of these southern families. Now there's much talk again about what's been going off in the east of the Boltons and the Mandalays and the Hornwoods, and Starks against Boltons versus Mandalay, because remember Sir Roderick has, has rode out to try and calm the situation in place of the Starks. Obviously this would be Rob's job or Ned's job if they were still here, but Sir Roderick is filling in for now. And Starks against Boltons versus Manderley reminds me slightly of Gardeners against Peak versus Manderley. And it's hard to put an army together to stop the fighting when your army is normally made up of the combatants. Roderick, if this has been happening on the other side, and it was Glovers versus Mormonts or something, then Roderick might have said, hey Boltons, hey Manderleys, Let's get together and go and sort this out. But it's not really an option at the moment because so many people are off with Rob and now there's infighting as well. It's, it's just not helpful. So he's in a tricky situation. Then again, we all love Sir Roderick and we can definitely never doubt his loyalty. He is one of the best characters. We all love him. But put our analytical hat on and our fairness hat on. Like his decision, like his indecisions at the Harvest Feast, he he's really doomed all by not simply executing Reek reek in the air quotes again on the spot it's good it's nice that he wants to wait for rob's judgment that's loyal to rob that's propping he knows that when rob eventually comes home he needs to be seen as the king when he comes so he can't be doing all his work for him because that would make uh, rob seem the boy so he is i think he's actively thinking that that i have to really prop rob up, rob up here so that's fair but as nice as that is, he, he shouldn't really know that Rob could potentially be away for years. This is a big, big war. It's involving the entire continent, basically. There's not going to be any quick fixes. And as far as he knows, remember, Reek is just a manservant. It's not like he's captured a member of a, um, a large house, an important house. And even then, Ramsay would be a bastard anyway. So there's definite room for Roderick to do the deed himself. And if he had, if he had just executed Reek as soon as he'd got him, he would have prevented a great many crimes, and probably he would have just retaken Winterfell from Theon with, with ease, even if it had been a bit tricky with Beth and all that. But we can't blame Roderick for that. That's, that's hindsight is twenty twenty, and he's not to know. But if only he had been confident enough in himself or in Rob to just do his sentencing for him. But that's it for Bran, what was that, Bran 5? We're on to Tyrion 8 now, right, way back down the south. We're talking Renly, we're talking marriage, and we're back in the small council. And I think I said this a couple of weeks, I think this is the second small council meeting that we get, and I think it might be the last one, if I remember correctly, because soon enough, Stannis is going to be knocking on the door and there's no time for small council meetings. So I mentioned last week that Cersei has falsely had some of the murders of the series so far laid at her feet, 
And here we see it switch. We had that connection last week between Catelyn and Cersei in terms of motherhood. Now we can kind of see a connection in terms of false murders because Catelyn is obviously a possible suspect for Renly's murder. And the physical description of Renly's death is actually pretty dead on, minus the shadow being there. But in terms of his throat being cut and the gorget and stuff like that, they've got some really detailed information here. So I'm guessing Varys has some spies deep in Renly's camp. I think we can agree on that. I think he's probably got spies anywhere, but this is everywhere, rather. But this is pretty clear. We don't normally get that big a hint. And I'd actually forgot that it's Tyrion that jumps straight on this situation and suggests the marriage of Joffrey and Marjorie. And I, I, I suppose this is the propaganda of post-Blackwater King's Landing rubbing off on me. Because I, I generally didn't remember that it was Tyrion's idea. So really, Tyrion is responsible for every aspect of the def defence and victory of the Blackwater. He thought of the chain, he thought of the wildfire, not just him for the wildfire, but he put it to use. And turns out he actually fought up the Tyrell Lannister alliance. So shame on me for forgetting that. My apologies, Tyrion. You are really responsible for everything. So, which makes what comes in Storm even more annoying for him, of course. Really, he is the entire saviour, not just of the city, but of the Lannister dynasty. They would be dead and buried without Tyrion. So again, what happens to him Storm and further on, even worse to think of. And he really percepts both Loras and Mace's different motivations in the matter and how to work with them. Which is a wonder, really, because how many personal interactions has he ever had with either of them? It can't be many, can it really, if you think about it. But yet he's completely understood their psychology in this crucial moment and how to put it to best use. He is obviously linking back to, I think it was his previous chapter, it might have been Sansa's previous chapter, where he's thinking he doesn't want Joff Joffrey to marry Sansa. So he doesn't think that directly here, I don't think, but it's in the back of his mind. Going around the table of uh, this small council meeting, we've got Littlefinger, and to give it to Peter Baelish, but one of his smarter chapters in general, it's one of his better chapters he's not outright uh, annoying anyone he's not being quite the little teen prick that he is and at the very least he's got an excuse to get out of this city without appearing to be abandoning it and if we can guess anything about peter baelish it's, he's probably quite fond of saving his own skin and not all that interested in being in a massive battle so he's found a clever way to get out of that without anyone being able to blame him yeah it's not it's not a coincidence that he manages to get out just as the news of stannis being on the march of a huge army comes along like I say, it's a smart chapter of him. Not only has he just done that and got out of the city, but he puts himself quite quickly into a position to get Harrenhal and therefore move on to Lysa. But he also doubles up and gets Sansa out of her betrothal and much closer to his own pocket. So a double-double for Mr. Littlefinger in this chapter. And said that this is the beginning of some incredibly tight circumstances that have to happen for King's Landing to be saved. Littlefinger, he has to get there, like, basically right as he does. It's all got to happen in near perfect timing so that the Tyrells can meet up with Tywin. They can get there literally in the nick of time to save the city. If we're talking, I don't know, a couple of hours difference, a day certainly, one way or the other, things are very, very different. We often forget how stupidly close Stannis came to winning and thinking about how that would have changed the series is obviously mind-boggling. I think Aziz got to my, my quote about Tyrion and being uh, the same age at which I was married and how surprising that is to me because the, the other surprise about that quote is, if you remember, Cersei says, you shamed us all with that sorry episode. And like Aziz mentioned, I was surprised that Cersei even brought up Tysha, but also surprised that Cersei could reply with that a statement about Tysha and Tyrion not completely fixate on it. But I think we can agree, if this had happened later on, if Dan's Tyrion had heard this, you can be sure he's dwelling on it for a while. 
But I think that's just another sign of him riding high. This is his peak and things like that don't bother him quite as much. Obviously, Dark Tyrion later on, different beast, and he definitely would be focusing on that and fixating and stewing over it. Last quote to end the this chapter. But regardless, there's still much to be said for a Tyrell marriage. It may be the only way that Joffrey lives long enough to reach his wedding night. That's from Tyrion. And uh, that's true. He does live long enough to reach his wedding night, but no further. Okay, flying through today. We're on to Fion 3, the one where Fion attacks the Stony Shore, attacks the Northerners, and begins his invasion of the North. So up until this point... Fionn could have changed or backed out of the plan. He didn't have to go through with it. He hasn't actually... He could have either kept to Balon's plan. He even might have been able to get away with not going along with it at all. Possibly. Maybe not. But this chapter is pretty much equal to that superb scene from the show where he, he writes a letter to Rob and then you can see him burning it. Just it, just him and this burning letter in a shot of shadow. And that's one of the better, better scenes in the entire show, if you ask me. So this is that book equivalent. And Fionn, in his first two chapters... He's been arrogant, he's been stupid, he's been very misogynistic, and a whole bunch of other things, but here he is a straight-up war criminal. This is a different step. He's no different to Carl Drogo, or Gregor, or any of them, really. And we don't have POVs in the heads of Drogo, or Gregor, or any of the others, really, but we are in Fion's head for this horror. And not only does he see it as a viable way to advance his plan, he thinks, yeah, okay, people are getting slaughtered, but that's got to happen. But he's also quite content to brush off murder, and mass rape. He's again just fine. Yeah, this is part of the part of the game. So now we're really into a different level of Theon's thinking and just disconnection from the world. He's even delusional enough not to realise why his fight with the wild hares doesn't feel quite the same as the Whispering Wood, despite uh, some similar tactics and a similar setup. It's obvious to everyone on the planet, but him, why he doesn't feel as satisfied, and he just can't work it out. So emotional intelligence score for Theon. Oh, that's a good minus five. We also have to remember that although Theon knows how to kick off his plan well in terms of drawing out Roderick, his is a plan that really only gets him as far as Winterfell. He's not thinking further than that. He's not thinking about the overall Ironborn invasion. He's, he's got no clue. He's just thinking, yeah, but if I take Winterfell, that's the glory. That's the story. That's the headline. Nothing else really matters. What am I going to do with it in a month's time, in a year's time? What's going to happen afterwards? Are the North going to come get me? Not interested, get me the headline. That's his whole mindset at the moment. Now, I'd not caught on to this before, but on this reread, it occurs to me that Fionn's missed shot, if you remember, he, he's going to kill someone, he misses, he kills Todrick, his ironborn man instead. That's exactly what Rob was worried would happen when Fionn saved Bran in the Wolfswood. So, well done, Rob. It seems you were actually right very easily. Fionn could have aimed for Stiv, got Bran instead, and, well, we can imagine... And Fionn, he actually thinks about the Wolfswood instance, but he still doesn't connect that. He still doesn't think, yeah, Rob was actually right there. I should probably dwell on that a bit. He doesn't see anything wrong with Todrick's death at all. And he just doesn't have any blame or any guilt or any anything for He just doesn't feel anything. He's really, well, we know what path he's on, but he's sliding along it pretty fast already. So he talks to Dagmar, Dagmar Cleftjaw in this chapter and we don't get enough Dagmar Cleftra I don't think. Dagmar he's pretty into smiling he's a smiler and Fionn was noted in Game of Thrones over and over again as always smiling and always having some joke that only he knew a, a number of different characters thought of him like that and it seems like Dagmar Cleftjaw spent more time raising Fionn than Balon ever did so it makes sense that Dagmar's where he picked up the habit of smiling because I'm pretty sure that Balon Greyjoy isn't so much into the smiling unfortunately. And finally for this chapter I think as he's noted it for you Theon, he won't swing the sword, but he won't do the drowning either. 
truly he is neither Stark nor Greyjoy and he just can't realise any of that and as he spoke about uh, Eddard Stark and the, the guilt and oh Theon all of that all of that and that's all I have for Theon. We're moving on to Aya 8, the one with Jacques Nagar's number two kill. So I think is specifically the fact that Weiss, you remember Weiss, I'm sure, strikes at Aya during the moment where she feels being feels like being a wolf again. She's got some confidence, she's feeling good. Then Weiss takes it all back away, hits her, makes her feel not like a wolf. And that, that seals his fate in my mind. And I don't blame Aya. There's a lot of discussion about who she should have killed with this uh, second or even the first name she can give to Jacques Nagar. And while I can definitely see the temptation of what, why we would want her to do that, let's try and be in her mindset a bit. Let's be a bit empathetic. I don't blame Aya at all for saying Weiss's name. She is 10 years old. It makes complete sense. And to be fair, she was actually intending to name Gregor or one of his old men before the time limit started kind of pressuring her, pressuring her a bit and she just got to Whis because because in fact she's not actually just thinking out of blind rage here yes it is it is anger his mistreatment of her but she actively thinks about how killing Whis could mean her own escape and that is obviously the most valuable proposition there is for her right now and rightly so so it's not just he hit me I'm gonna kill him she is thinking about why it would be valuable if someone else, if some random dude had tripped her up on the way to one of her duties, I don't think she would have went, right, that's it, he's dead. You can see it, she even thinks very briefly about maybe she should have killed Hot Pie. She knows there's no actual advantage to that and that he doesn't actually deserve it. She's putting on people who do deserve it and might serve some purpose for her advancement in, a, in terms of situation. So she is being smart about it. Now about Weiss's death. A broken neck is one thing, if you remember that's how Chiswick went. And I don't know why I thought this the other day, but I do think we should start a petition to change change the pronunciation of Chiswick to Cheesewick. I just think that would have been more fun. Of course he's gone now, so we probably won't need to say Cheesewick much in the future, but in my head that's how I'm saying it now. But anyway, he had a broken neck from Jacques Nagar. And that's one thing. Okay, anyone can push someone off a wall. But now we've got the warping of a loyalty of a lifelong pet, which is a lot more creepy. So we can combine that with his superhero hearing that he shows off in the bathhouse in this chapter, and the fact that when, when Aya says Jacques name to Rorge, who is normally quite confident and sure of himself, he gets that really scared look in his eyes, and it's a great reaction. And it really builds up Jacken's character as not a normal fellow. So we really have to start wondering, like, what is this guy about in this chapter? And again, good old Aziz used most of my notes for this chapter. So I only have one more. And it is that when I, uh, she's sent to fetch some long swords, she gets to touch one briefly and she instantly feels powerful because it, uh, even though she doesn't reference it, she's obviously missing needle. And that's her connection to not only her abilities, the things she bases her personality on, but her northernness as well. So that's her connection to home and everything she remembers, as she details very much so in uh, Feast for Crows. Okay, so we are, we're on the last chapter already, everybody. A nice quick one for you today. Let me get back to the grindstone. So this Catelyn chapter, she's back at River Run after all her riding around. I think as these mentioned that, that she's been here, there and everywhere. Now she gets to rest a bit. Not that that brings her much happiness. But before we get to Catelyn, let's talk about Rob and the West because we get a lot of news about that in this chapter. So firstly, we have Peak Greywind here. He finds the goat track and leads Rob around the Golden Tooth. He also plays a major role in the battle. And it truly makes you wonder what could have come if Grey Wind and the other Direwolves had grown into full strength. Is it like dragons where they just keep keep going? 
Um, and if they had all had the chance to really explore the connection that he and Robert obviously put into great use, I think most people agree that Bran and uh, some are kind of a different category. But other than that, Rob and Greywind, they're much further along in their connection and they obviously have an opportunity to put it to better use than most of us. So if everything had gone well and if Lady was still around and if I was still with Nymeria and all of them were together, what could have really ended up if they just had ample opportunity to grow and really forge that connection? Who knows, but we do get a good hint here. It probably isn't explicitly pointed out enough how important Greywind was to this Western campaign. It really isn't. He doesn't get the, the shine he should. Now, Rob, he really rings the bell in this Westlands campaign. He gains food. He gains revenge. He gains the respect of his peers, especially the, um, the River Lords, for punishing the Lannisters and doing what they have done to the Riverlands. Now, in fairness, that doesn't mean much to the small folk of the Western people, who are assumedly suffering the same fate as the Riverlanders now. We ne we don't know. We never ever go to the Westlands, so we can't say for sure. But as much as we might want to believe that the Northern Army and the Riverland Army are much nicer than the Lannister Army, that would probably be quite naive of us. And true, there's not the outright burning of crops and the total devastation that the Riverlands suffers, but you can be sure there is suffering. So we do have to take that with a pinch of salt. But in terms of Rob's political game, he's doing very well. He's also eliminated the possibility of being caught in a pincer because he's destroyed this western army so tywin's grand plan of bringing two armies and flanking either side of rob that's now gone and he has to make tywin come west too it's pretty much perfect tywin now has to abandon his uh, defensive multiplier in harrenhal all his plans are in the privy and really you can't ask much more of rob in this in this campaign it's near perfect which we don't really see often in the war of five kings normally Something comes with a caveat, and we we do know, actually, that that's coming in storm. Not in terms of battle or uh, military, but in the political realm with Port Jean Westerling. But like Greywind, Oxcross and the victory there really doesn't get enough shine overall. And just note, one more note on this Westerling's victory. So Mage, Mage Mormont, she's got this great big herd of cattle that she's driving around somewhere. And I just wonder, what happened to them? Are they still around? Are they, are they with her? Did she deliver them to the Riverlands somewhere? Just because they're probably going to be more valuable than gold come Winds of Winter, when all that food that got burned up is gone and the winds are really coming, the famine is starting, a great big herd of cattle, that's going to be important. So I wonder if they come back. Now again, not to Catelyn yet, we're switching from Rob to Edmure now. And I know Aziz spoke on this as well, but I want to put my shine on it because I was thinking about this quite a lot. Edmure's plan for the defence of... River Run and the Riverlands at large, in term, against Tywin, I mean, is solid, we can't deny, and it obviously works because he wins. But we can see from his interactions with Catelyn in this chapter that his ego and his want for glory, and perhaps even some light jealousy with all the... with all the shine going to his young nephew, uh, they all play a part. Considering how we've just heard about all the positives from Rob's victory at, Ox at Oxcross, it's a real bummer for rereaders to then be immediately presented with the beginning of the mistake that in many ways loses Rob the War, at least in one facet. There are obviously other factors. But Emil, he really needs a victory, reputation-wise. Of late, he's lost a battle. He's been easily outwitted by Tywin. He's been captured. He needed that same nephew to come and save him. 
And recently, he came within an inch of losing Jamie Lannister because someone was impersonating him. Plus, uh, everyone enjoys that song about the floppy fish. So we can really see why Edmure wanted a, a statement win to get some respect back. He needed you know, something to lean on here. Especially because Hoster is on his way out. Edmure knows what's coming. He doesn't want to start off his reign as Lord of Riverrun with all those bad things I just mentioned. In fairness, I do have a soft spot for Edmure. I've always got the feeling that he was never truly trained for his position by Hoster for whatever reason, whether that's because Catelyn was kind of the the one to go to in their youth or, or if he's just racked, about guilt, uh, racked with guilt about Lysa after the fact or whatever it was. I don't think he was properly taught. And whether he has a, ta whether he has a tactical mind or not, again, he does win this battle, so he obviously has some kind of tactical skill. He does... He also tries to save the small folk at every opportunity, which is not a common trait among the nobles. So we've got to give that to Edmure. And now we've really started getting into this timeline of Boltons and Freys starting to cook up some schemes. Given we hear about Roose Bolton's marriage to Walder Frey, Edmure's command sent along to the force at the Twins, and obviously more of that as we go. But it seems especially important because in this chapter we get multiple mentions of Frey and Tully banners flapping together. Catelyn is, is so glad to see the Frey sigil etc so george is really setting us up there saying that tully's and phrase tully's and phrase tully's and phrase oh here's the red wedding you know what he's like briefly some of catelyn's prejudices come uh prejudice against bastards come out again in her thoughts about courtney penrose she just obviously hasn't left that part of her personality behind she still believes that very much even if Jon snow is miles and miles away now and i also wonder what route did catelyn and her little band of guards take to return from storm's end because they probably wanted to give both King's Landing and Bitterbridge a pretty wide berth. But she also states they rode through the heart of war. So you got to think, how close did she get to Aya there? Not that they could have done anything, because Aya is in Harrenhal. But this makes you wonder, doesn't it? As always with these Catelyn chapters, we got to talk some quotes here. So the first is, uh, this is Catelyn talking to Brienne. She says, then fight, but for the living, not for the dead. And... Uh, that's kind of the opposite of what she was going to ask her later in Feast for Crows. I've been thinking a lot about this re-meeting of Brienne and Catelyn later in Feast for Crows and, and obviously into the Winds of Winter. And it's really got me salivating to find out what happens there based on their meeting here. I think it's easy to forget the connection that they forge in this little bit of um, Clash of Kings. So yeah, that really, really has me thinking. And it this chapter also has me wishing that Brienne had cried out Stannis when she's about to be hanged by the Brotherhood in terms of reminding Catelyn that she still has this oath to fulfill and that Catelyn has a, a part in that. She witnessed the same thing that Brienne did, so there would have been a good reason to cut her down. But obviously, we did not get that. That would have been a good loop back to this, this here chapter. Final quote for today, for this chapter and for Catelyn. She thinks, The Silent Sisters do not speak to the living, but somehow they can talk to the dead, and how she envied that. So that, that's our cat devastating line today. As I said last week, we have to get one in every chapter, apparently. So Silent Sisters. What's Catelyn now? Is she the silent mother? Could be. Either way, that's the chilling line. And what a lovely way to end the podcast today. Catelyn thinking about poor Redard's bones. Well, I hope that's uh, cheered you all up. It's definitely got me in a bright and breezy mood. I can't wait to go out in the freezing cold with the dog now. Hope you've enjoyed, everybody. I know it's a quick one today, but like I say... Uh, the Castles book is main priority at the moment. One day it'll be finished, hopefully. He says, he says, 
nervously wringing his hands and sweating at the brow. Thank you everyone for tuning in and listening. Thank you all for your interactions. Like I say at the beginning there, gave all the contact details. Do say hello. Do leave your ratings or whatever you like. It's always fun to interact with all of you. And make sure you keep up with History of Westeros. I'm sure you are already. And their live streams on Sundays. Next week we will be back with another six chapters. Part 8. Part 8 of 12 remember. So we are getting to the, the juicy bits and the black water which i'm sure is everyone's favorite out of the series that is coming soon i'm sure you're looking forward to that as much as i am goodbye everybody and have a great day